0: Welcome back to our musical spark notes here on Attention to Detail. Today we are going to break down the first act of the last opera and my personal favorite opera in the Ring Cycle, Götterdämmerung. I think it's the best music. I think it's the most exciting. It's the culmination of everything that's that's built up so far. It's a very long act and uh, unique to this opera, Götterdämmerung. we also have a long prelude to the act. So... We're going to include that in this breakdown, so we'll get right to it, because it's a lot of music. And again, we'll be cutting lots of stuff at points during this episode. I'll give some suggestions for things to listen to that we can't include in this episode, because I really think there's some fantastic music in this first act that is worth just taking the time to go and actually listen to the whole section of music, um, because it's just so, so stunning, so fun to listen to. So I hope you'll do that. But let's dive right in. We open uh, Götterdammerung with some music that we actually have heard already, and we heard it. We heard it in a different musical key, but we heard it very shortly ago in in our Ring cycle timeline here, at towards the end of Siegfried. And let's listen to the opening of of this uh, this final opera because it. It's exactly the same passage that we heard when Brunhilde first wakes up, when Siegfried has arrived at this magic rock and she sees daylight for the first time since she's been woken from her magic sleep. So here's the opening to Gittadamon. interesting it turns out that this passage is for those theory buffs who are curious one half step lower in key than what we heard in in Siegfried that's in what we call E minor this is in what we call E flat minor at least the first chord and I think there's some some importance there namely that uh when we drop like that just a little bit, it suggests deflation or uh, kind of dropping in music always has a negative connotation. And so there's some, some kind of uh, ominous or dark tone that this passage that we've heard has taken on at the beginning of the Guptanamo. So I think it's the first of many harbingers of, of bad things to come in this opera. Sets it up from the very first note. So then we open in this prologue with three Norns, they're called. And the Norns are they're daughters of Erda, the, the earth goddess that we've encountered many times. And they can tell the future through this kind of rope that they uh, weave. And they weave the rope of the future and the past. And they can see everything that's happened and everything that will happen. It's a little bit like... Uh, Akin to the three witches in Macbeth or something. It's this this group of three kind of mystical creatures that are, are, seeing seeing the future. So we open on the three norns and they sing a bunch about uh, what's already happened, uh, what's going to happen. They mention this important thing, this this world ash tree. I don't I don't know exactly how to translate it to English, but it's this kind of tree that. That gives power to the gods. And through the out of that tree, Votan fashioned his his now very well-known spear, which has its own light motif. But that tree has begun to wither. This is kind of this happens in Lord of the Rings as well. Um, and when they mention that the tree had started to wither, we hear our downfall, fall of the gods, Getadamarang, which means Twilight of the Gods, motif. Um, we'll hear that motif many times uh, in this opera. It, it makes sense, given that the opera is called Twilight of the Gods. But that is the first time we hear it when they mention that this world, Ashtree, has begun to, to wither. So they're kind of babbling on about uh, the past, the future. It's one of these moments where Wagner recounts a lot of what has happened. They're asking, what, has, what will happen with their rope? We hear this kind of relinquishment motif that we've heard many times. Um, they, and then the third Norn, they, there's three Norns. The first talks about the past. The second kind of talks about the present. And the third Norn looks into the future. And there's one important moment that I want us to listen to when the third Norn is singing. Uh, when she sings, When it's wood burneth glowing and bright, then shall flames feed on the glittering halls. The end of all godhood dawneth then forever and I. So she's talking about this ash tree, and there's some there's some implication that uh, the the wood from the ash tree is gonna burn and light the glittering halls of Valhalla, the home of the gods, on fire, and that will be the the twilight, the end of the gods. And let's listen to this key moment when the third Norn sings that line. She's singing about Valhalla burning we hear some fire music the fire motif and then very importantly the motif I just mentioned the downfall of the gods when she says uh you know the the end of all godhood dawneth forever we hear this motif the one that goes this kind of descending scale and then also, importantly, our keen ears might have noticed this at the end of that passage, and that is our kind of the motif that's come to represent destiny or fate. So, there's this that always has this implication that it implies kind of the, the ring, the ring has its own motif, but it implies fate or destiny. We can just leave it at that. So, in any case. The Norns keep recapping what has happened up till this point. They're kind of summarizing the action of the ring till now. We hear tons of light motifs according to what, what they're talking about. Um, and then their rope starts to break. And, and this has never happened before. This is a monumental moment for them. For some reason, their rope is breaking. And one of the Norns says, A curse of revenge gnaws at the moldering strands of our rope. So that curse, presumably being Albert's curse, and let's listen to this key moment as well when their rope actually breaks. <laughs> all right so our leitmotifs are coming fast here we get importantly she says uh, this curse is breaking our rope and we hear if we remember back to previous operas our curse motif what alberic sang way back in das Rheingold*, when he cursed the ring goes like this we hear that it's kind of imposing. It's played by itself, uh, and then we hear that the fall of the gods, twilight of the gods motif again there at the end. So again, implication that this is near the the fall of the gods, and then we go into a passage that is is usually referred to as Siegfried's Rhine journey, uh, one of the most famous passages in all of Wagner, and this is one of the passages that I recommend you go listen to. So there's this long. Uh, passage. You can find all of these in the recording that's attached in the in the show notes. And there's a long passage that's this kind of sunrise as they wake up next to the Rhine. There's actually a motif of the sun rising that we hear many times. And we also hear Brunhilde's mo- motif fully formed for the first time here. And so let's listen to just a tiny bit of this music. But it's kind of a glorious long passage where the sun rises and then a really triumphant music at the, at the end of this long, slow buildup. But let's listen to the beginning just so we get these two motifs in our ear. Sun rising and then most importantly the Brunhilde motif. So there, that nice, beautiful clarinet line, that's Brunhilde's motif. It has that little turn in it. It goes... It has that little turn before it arises. But interestingly, that is very closely connected to this motif that we've heard already, which goes... That's the beginning of the motif for the Velsungs, which we've heard over and over. You remember this is this race of uh, Wotan's kin, Zygmunt and Sieglinde were part of this. Uh, Siegfried is certainly part of this. And in somehow, it seems like in joining with Siegfried in this kind of bond of love, Brunhilde has now assumed this other motif that's intimately related to the Velsung motif. And she's shed in some ways her previous motif, which was the, the Valkyrie motif that went. The one that we know well from Ride of the Valkyrie. So we hadn't heard this other motif before, but now she's, she's kind of become one of the Velsungs, And you'll remember she, she gave up her godly status to be a mortal because she was in love with Siegfried. So interesting use of light motif there. So this is a passage to listen to. There's this kind of ecstatic love duet between Siegfried and Brunhilde. They're just basking in their newfound love for each other. And let's listen to a brief moment of, of uh, not negativity, but there's all this positivity and, and uh, love being discussed in this you know, romantic duet for long period of time at the beginning of this prologue. And there's this one dark moment in the middle. And let's just listen to that one dark moment when Brunhilde says, Remember the oaths that have bound us. And here's the power of leitmotifs because, again, they're singing about their love. And remember the oaths that bound us doesn't have to be a dark line at all. But listen to the music right when she says that. briefly the music goes to what we call minor and again we hear that fate destiny motif but as quickly as it comes it disappears and we go back to this uh, major romantic music but that's the power of leitmotifs because that gives us a clue remember the oaths that have bound us something is going to happen along those lines that's not going to be positive but that's going to be a result of destiny or fate so we hear tons more of these love motifs. There are many of them, and we hear them all. Uh, Siegfried then, very important moment, he gives Brunhilde the ring as a show of his his love. And we hear, of course, the ring motif when he does that. Brunhilde, in exchange, gives him her horse, Grana, because he has to go off on his many adventures. I'm not exactly sure what he has to go do, but he has to leave and, and take care of something. Um, and he... He's going to ride off and uh, go on his adventures, and he wants Brunhilde to wait for him at this magic rock, still encircled by fire. So she waited like 80 years for for him to wake her out of her sleep, but she's got to wait a little longer, so he's going to ride off and, and do all of his heroic things. So let's listen to a little highlight of the end of this very long, ecstatic aria passage. But, yeah, I'd encourage you, if you have time, to go listen Starts at about 19 minutes and 45 seconds in the recording below. That's where the whole passage starts with the sunrise uh, and Brunhilde's motif. But also, if you're going to listen to the main portion, this kind of eight-minute portion that is played often by itself, it's called Siegfried's Rhine Journey. It starts at around 30 minutes and 45 seconds or so in our recording down below. I can't play the whole thing here, but... I really encourage you to go listen to this it's one of the greatest orchestral interludes ever written in opera but we'll get a little taste of the end of their ecstatic aria as it goes into this orchestral interlude called Siegfried's Rhine Journey as he's riding past the Rhine on Brunhilde's horse. So here's the here's the end of their aria beginning of Siegfried's Rhine Journey. It's almost criminal to, to stop this recording. I really hope that you go and listen, because this is... I really think that Götterdämmerung. this is one of many examples of his full maturity as a composer, Wagner, and really the actual musical along with narrative culmination of this ring cycle. You'll find, I think, if you listen closely, one thing that Wagner is doing here that he doesn't do so much in the first three operas is there are these webs of leitmotifs that are created. It's not just like, okay, this happens, here's one leitmotif, something else happens, here's the other leitmotif. And he would do that in previous operas, even in pretty quick succession. But as you find in a passage like Siegfried's Rhine Journey, or many of the passages that we'll highlight today, there are multiple leitmotifs coming together at the same time, and you're suddenly realizing, oh, wow, Fifteen hours ago in the opera, I didn't realize, but this leitmotif was constructed so that it could fit with this other leitmotif musically perfectly. And it's like this incredible apotheosis musically, but it also connects all of these concepts, ideas that have been threads throughout these operas, love, uh, renunciation of love, fate, destiny. And so I really think in that way, it's just it's an incredible work get to Damerung and so I would encourage you to go go listen to this Siegfried's Rhine journey So that takes us uh, into the first act we've only now made it to the actual first act of this this opera and the first act we open on the hall of we've got a different race of people now that we, we were dealing with the Velsungs, and now we're dealing with the Gibichungs. I don't uh, really know who they are honestly uh, if anyone wants to shoot me a message as to who the Gibichungs are if they've done their their Norse mythology research. That would be fantastic. But in any case, there are a few characters that are of importance here. Gunther and Gutruna. Uh, Gunther and Gutruna, siblings. Gunther is the the king of the Gibichungs, and neither of them have married yet, and so they're sitting in their hall uh, lamenting the fact that they have... Not married yet. But here is the beginning of Act One. We get introduced to the motif of, of Gunther and the Gibbageungs. Like we've heard the Nibelung motif, we've heard the Velsung motif, here's the Gibbageung motif. particularly important motif, but we should hear the beginning of that act nonetheless. So Gunther is talking to Hagen, and uh, Hagen is a very important character for this, this opera. He turns out to be the, the son of Alberic the dwarf. Um, so he is a Nibelung, he's not a Gibichung, but also, more importantly, he's a very nefarious character, and he's going to be the primary villain of this opera. And so it's very clear right from the outset that Hagen is, is scheming um, and he wants the ring. Uh, spoiler alert, but that's his, his goal here is he wants to get the ring. Um, avenge his, his, his father who, you know, cursed the ring. But uh, Hagen's plan quickly is revealed and we'll listen to a short moment here where he says that, you know, Gunther is, is lamenting the fact that he doesn't have a wife And Hagen tells him that a wife awaits thee on this rock, uh, the mountaintop. Of course, we know that to be Siegfried's wife, or at least they've proclaimed their love for each other, but Hagen is scheming something here. So here's that moment when he says, A wife awaits thee. Ich sterbe, Herr. ein Feuer so brennt Zeit. nur das Feuer just found this to be incredible music it's so exciting uh, you hear the magic fire there again he says uh, you know a wife awaits you and you also hear Brunhilde's Valkyrie motif a couple of times in the background so we know this wife to be Brunhilde Gunther is afraid that he's not strong enough to to win Brunhilde because Hagen has told him that you know you need to make it through this circle of magic fire but Hagen tells him that Siegfried is of course, we hear the Siegfried motif there. So then Gutruna, Gunther's sister, shows up, and she's curious. She acts, asks about Siegfried. Um, this guy sounds pretty impressive. Uh, he's, he's so far one for one with the women he's met, so naturally Gutruna is also interested. And uh, Hagen tells Gutruna about Siegfried's exploits, how he knows about them. It's unclear because last we checked... Siegfried was on the mountaintop with Brunhilde. I'm not sure how the news spread so quickly of his heroic exploits. But in any case, Hagen knows. And he mentions that uh, Siegfried has the ring. And he who has the ring could rule the world. And so this is an extra enticement for for Gunther to... Or Guteruna. They don't realize that Siegfried has passed the ring along. But this is enticement for Gutruna and Gunther, her brother, to... To for Gutruna to marry Siegfried. So suddenly the plan is coming uh, in focus. Hagen wants Gutruna to marry Siegfried, and she wants, and he wants Gunther to marry Brunhilde. Sorry, it's it's hard to keep track of all of these, these characters and names. So they agree to this. They, they think this is a good idea. And we hear, right when they agree, then we hear Siegfried's horn in the distance. And it's followed immediately by the the curse motif. So Siegfried is showing up. We hear his horn off stage, and he is riding down the Rhine, uh, right to the Hall of the Gibichungs, and we hear the curse motif. So something something bad is going to happen. So we hear the Rhine's motif itself as Siegfried is is coming down the Rhine on his boat. Apparently, the Hall of the Gibichungs is right uh, right on the Rhine. Excellent location, um, and. Siegfried finally shows up and let's listen to the moment when he shows up because all of this excitement turns into what we will hear as a massive iteration of this, this curse motif again. So here's when Siegfried shows up at the Hall of the Gebetschelings, the very end of the first scene. excited music of Siegfried showing up, his horn, it uh, gets blasted out of the way by a massive iteration of the the curse motif. So, we move on to scene two, and Siegfried arrives in the hall, we hear his motif several times, then he meets Hagen, and the moment he meets Hagen, we hear that curse motif again, so that would clear something is happening. He talks with Gunther a bit, Siegfried talks with Gunther a bit, um, then Hagen asks him if uh, he's the ruler of the, the Nibelungs, Siegfried, because, you know, he has the ring. Um, briefly while he's, he's asking him this, and Hagen is kind of playing it coy, and he's like not really making clear who he is. Um, and he's just asking him these kind of veiled questions. But very briefly, we should listen to one more moment, because Hagen sees out of the corner of his eye something that Siegfried has with him, which is the Tarnhelm. Remember, this is the second most important item in this whole saga, and the second most important that item that Siegfried took from the dragon. It's that magic helmet that can transform you into different things. Um, and let's just remind ourselves what the motif of the Tarnhelm is as Hagen sees this out of the corner of his eye. Dein Haupt, dir zu tauschen, jede Gestalt. Verlang dich's an fernsten Ort, er empfie- So there you have the motif of the Tarnhelm, that kind of sneaky thing that goes like this... And then... It's one of my favorite motifs in the ring. And the Tarnhelm is going to actually be a very important item in this this act, and so we should keep that in mind. Hagen sees it out of the corner of his eye, so Siegfried then divulges that Brunhilda actually has the ring. Hagen, of course, kind of sneakily asks, where is it? And he says that Brunhilda has the ring. So then Gutruna, I, I failed to mention that they have prepared for this, and Gutruna has mixed him up a love potion. That's something that apparently you can do in this world, uh, Harry Potter-esque in this way. And she, she offers him a drink, which happens to be this love potion, and Siegfried drinks the drink. And let's listen to the moment when he actually drinks the drink, because you will hear another great uh, moment of leitmotif in sequence. You'll hear the transformation in Siegfried's mind as he drinks this love potion. So, right as this passage ends, we start hearing what turns out to be Gatruna's motif, because of course he has switched and fallen in love with Gatruna. But right before he drinks the drink, we hear this motif that goes like this. Which, if you'll remember, we heard very, it was this big declamation when they Siegfried and Brunhilde. Fell in love and has come to represent specifically their love. We we heard it at the end of Siegfried when they meet each other and they fall in love. So, Siegfried's love gets transformed by this potion, and we hear it in the actual light motifs. So then we hear this passage. Lots of Getrune motif as Siegfried. Uh, it it gets very passionate because he's he's very much in love with this this other woman now, um, and. We hear the curse motif again. Siegfried asks Gunther if he has a wife. And Gunther, now they're all in on this plot. And Gunther says, you know, I have this woman that I'm interested in, but I can't I can't win her. She's she's on this mountaintop. There's a lot of talk, we've touched on it already, but a lot of talk of winning wives and going and rescuing wives and uh, again, the disclaimer, as we always always give, that this is a wildly outdated narrative, but in any case, we will trudge on. Gunther says he can't win his wife, um, and he tells him about this magic fire that's that's guarding her, and, and Siegfried, of course, says, I don't, I don't fear the magic fire. At this point, he's forgotten everything that happens. This, this love potion erases all memory, and all he can think about is Gutrina, And so now Siegfried wants to, he says, okay, Gunther, I'll go win you Brunhilde um, if you allow me to marry your sister. So again, men sorting out the love lives of women without even asking them. Uh, We won't delve into the problems with that. But that is Siegfried's plan now is, okay, I'll go. I'm in love with Getrina. Let me go win Brunhilde. And of course, if he does this, we know that This is going to be poorly received by Brunhilde. She's not going to know what's going on. Siegfried's memory. They were just singing this ecstatic aria, and now his memory has been wiped, and we don't know what's happening. So, then they take this blood oath. Uh, Gunther and Siegfried agree to take this blood oath. For some reason, Hagen does not agree. Siegfried actually turns around and asks, ''Why didn't you agree?'' but let's hear the moment when they decide blood brotherhood bound be by oath. Curse motif, big and imposing. And then we also hear the motif of Votan's spear there at the end. If you remember Votan's spear, that descending motif. If I, I the spear is not involved at this moment, but it's also come to represent oaths and justice and being bound to some sort of oath or law. You'll remember all of these oaths that Votan owed the giants were carved into his spear, so that's why we hear that motif there. So they drink this blood oath for some reason symbolically Hagen strikes their drinking horn into two pieces. Siegfried again asks why why didn't you join in the oath? But Hagen says some some uh, makes up something about how his blood isn't pure like Siegfried's. So Siegfried has this m- brief moment of hesitation, but otherwise uh, he seems fine. Gunther says don't worry, and Siegfried is back to his ardent, naive self, and we hear this big interlude as Siegfried and Gunther set off to the mountaintop. So Hagen then sits there, and he's got this big, long kind of monologue about his true intentions, kind of an aside, a Shakespearean style, let me tell the audience what I'm actually thinking. This is often called Hagen's Watch, and it's another... It's not as as great, I don't think, as Siegfried's Rhine Journey, but another famous passage from this act, and worth listening if you want, it's around one fifteen, an hour and 15 minutes into the recording that we've got below. But one important moment that we'll just highlight quickly is that he says, his rightful bride he brings to the Rhine with her he brings me the ring. So there's his real plan. Siegfried is going to bring Brunhilde, and with her the ring, which he wants. So let's listen to that one key moment from Huggins' watch. So there, he he says, they'll bring me the ring, and here's what we hear. The downfall of the gods motif yet again. So we know this is not good. We know this is going to lead to something bad. Then we hear this long, soft orchestral interlude with a lot of the Brunhilde motif that we heard at the beginning when we were having that kind of sunrise Similar music as we switch scenes again. We go back to the mountaintop for the last final scene three of this act. So then we hear a lot of Valkyrie, Ride of the Valkyrie style music again as Brunhilde is sitting there and hears a storm coming and her sister, one of her eight Valkyrie sisters, Valtrauta, shows up. And Brunhilde asks if she's shown up to say that Wotan is no longer mad at her um, because you remember... At the end of Valkyrie, she was, she was punished and uh, she disobeyed Wotan and he was angry. That's what set all these events into, into action. Um, he left her on this magic mountaintop surrounded by a ring of fire. And she recounts to Valtrada how Siegfried showed up. They fell in love. Um, but that's not the reason, Valtrada says. She says that Wotan has come back to Valhalla. His spear shattered. You'll remember Siegfried shattered his spear. And he's planning to burn down Valhalla. We hear a lot of Wotan's anguish motif here. His kind of there's he's got that motif of his resignation to his his fate. And we hear that a lot. And so there's this super log, super long monologue from Valtrada where she describes how Wotan wandered the world after being spurned by Brunhilde. He was, of course, assuming the role of the wanderer in Siegfried. And Let's listen to one key moment in this big, long monologue where she says, He closed his eyes, deeply sighing, and as in slumber spoke he the words, If ever the river maidens win from her hand again the ring, from the curse's load released were God and world. So his idea is that, you know, he hopes if Brunhilde can somehow give back the ring, I'll be relieved of this curse, and I won't you know, that we can avoid this this downfall of the gods. And I hope she's stronger than I am because I couldn't give up the ring, but maybe she can. So let's listen. This is a light, slightly longer clip, but let's listen to this clip where, where Valtrada relays that kind of message secondhand from Votan. So we hear the motif there of the Rhine Maidens, the one that goes like this. And the idea is that if we could return the ring to these Rhine Maidens, we also hear the ring, we hear the curse, uh, then we could save these events from, from happening. And at the end there, we hear the Valhalla motif again uh, because we know that that Wotan, you know, the destruction of the gods represented by Valhalla is imminent if, if the ring is not destroyed. So, Valtrauta asks Brunhilde to give up the ring, um, but she doesn't want to. She made this love pledge to Siegfried. She uh, decided to forego her immortality and instead wants to be with Siegfried. valtrauta begs, but Brunhilde is just singing ecstatically about Siegfried's love as before, and she says she will never turn away from love. And you'll remember, this is in direct contrast to characters we've had who have renounced love for the ring. Albrecht was the first to do it. And let's listen to this key moment when she says, From love I will never turn. And then we hear Valtratta ask, you know, is this the truth? Is this really what you want? And let's listen to this, this key moment. sings that line, I will never turn away from love. We hear this. (laughs) The renunciation of love motif. And she's saying, this is the exact same notes that Albrecht sang, but I am different. I'm not turning away from love. And it's a noble thing, of course, but we also know that this is going to lead to the downfall of the gods, because then we hear the downfall of the god's motif, and again, very quickly, that time at the end, we hear the curse motif again. So, important moment, key moment in the, in the plot that she she holds true, and she says, uh, she holds true to her love, but can't, can't destroy the ring. So, uh, Valtrauta flies away, we hear a Valkyrie music kind of interlude as she flies away, then we hear more of the magic fire music, because the fire starts raging now, because there's someone approaching. And she gets really excited uh, because she thinks Siegfried has returned. And let's listen to the moment when, you know, she thinks Siegfried has returned and instead who shows up is in fact Siegfried, but disguised by the Tarnhelm as Gunther. So Siegfried is the only one who can get through this ring of fire, but he's put on the Tarnhelm. This is the plan. He's, of course, in love with Gutruna, so very confusing He no longer loves Brunhilde and he's also transformed himself into Gunther. So here's that moment when he enters, breaks through the ring of magic fire for the second time and Brunhilde sees him. So as he's approaching, we hear tons of his motif, his horn motif, everything that represents Siegfried, along with... Here's what I'm talking about with Wagner. He's now wedded these with the magic fire music. It's all this one pastiche. It's, it's incredible writing. But then you can hear right at the end, she's, of course, terrified because she sees someone else. It's not Siegfried. Uh, it's, in fact, Gunther. But it is Siegfried. We just, she just doesn't know that. Very confusing. Um, makes more sense when you're actually watching... The opera, but in any case. So she sees it's Gunther. Uh, we hear this we hear this motif that actually kind of has represented, we've skipped over it. Um, it kind of has represented the magic potion that he was given. When he drinks it, we hear it. We hear it again now. It's very similar to the Tarnhelm motif because it's it's kind of a transformational device. The Tarnhelm turns you into a different person, the magic potion makes you love someone else, but Brunhilde asks who this intruder is, and we hear the Gunther motif, the one that we heard at the beginning of this act, um, and she cries out. So she thinks this is the punishment from Wotan. She, she thinks, oh, I'm actually not out of the doghouse. Wotan's still really mad at me, and he's sending this, this evil person. I'm in love with Siegfried, but for some reason this other person has showed up. So Siegfried, a.k.a., or Gunther, a.k.a. Siegfried, says that they need to be married her and Gunther, um, and she threatens him with, with the ring. She says, get away, this is powerful. At that moment, we hear a character who's not even there, and, a, and another motif that we've skipped over, but we will certainly hear many times, the motif of Hagen. Um, so we hear that as all of this fighting is going on because we you know his machinations are being realized here. They fight, Siegfried rests the ring away from, from Brunhilde. We hear a ton of the curse motif. She faints. We hear the Brunhilde motif. I'm going to skip this portion because I don't think it's the best music, but, but they have this big fight and Siegfried takes the ring away. And then at the very end of the act, um, you know he's kind of like, okay, let's go. We're, we're going to get married still as Gunther. And then he slips back into his own voice and he says, Now, notum that's the sword, witness thou that I in bonds have wooed keep thou my troth to my brother, let thy blade safeguard his bride. So he's kind of snapped out of his transformation, at least, or he knows that he's not Gunther, he's he's Siegfried, but he made this blood oath to Gunther, and he's going to protect his bride, not my bride, but his bride, because Siegfried is now fully engulfed in this potion, he loves Gutruna, and he's, and this is just uh traumatic beyond all end for for brunhilde so terrible situation that we're in here but let's listen to the end of the act where siegfried says that and then we we close the act in very uh it's a different end to the act than anything we've had this is this is pretty pessimistic and negative so here's the end of act one of Götterdämmerung. I'm actually impressed we've we've made it to the end in about 50 minutes here i thought this was going to be an insanely long episode but we cut a lot out you heard there at the end of the act the tarnhelm motif of all motifs being played triumphantly by the brass remember that's the this device that transforms people into something else and so that as i mentioned that was going to be a key player in this act and it was here because it's it's what led to all this trickery and, and this hairy situation that Brunhilde now finds herself in. So I recommend it. I would highly recommend going and listen, to some, listen to, listening to some of those key uh, incredible orchestral interludes in the middle of this act here, Siegfried's Rhine Journey. You can even just search Siegfried's Rhine Journey on YouTube or Spotify. There will be a million recordings. It's one of the greatest orchestral interludes Wagner ever wrote. There will be more of those in Gattameeran, more where this came from, because it really is a musically incredible uh, opera. And so there is the prologue, there is Act One. We're in a tight spot, but we will come back shortly and review Acts Two and then the the culminating Act Three, one of the greatest operatic acts ever composed, I've, in my in my opinion. So lots to look forward to. Still, there's the beginning of Gattameeran. Hopefully, as always. You've enjoyed it, staying safe, and we'll see you back shortly.